I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speaks. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week, the effects of radiation on quantum computer chips and attempts to execute aging computer code. I'm Nick Howe. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Once again this week, we'll be bringing you our coronavirus-specific segment, Coronapod, later on in the podcast. As ever, if you're here just for that, have a look at the timings in this week's show notes so you can skip straight to it. Otherwise, stick around for lots more non-corona science. That's right. In fact, first up, we've got a story about quantum computers, something we cover quite a lot. And that's because it's always hoped that someday these machines will harness the weirdness of quantum physics to do all sorts of calculations that would be impossible on so-called classical computers. At the heart of these machines are quantum bits, or qubits, and these can be made in different ways. For example, superconductors are being used by big tech firms like Google in their quantum computers. At incredibly low temperatures, electrons can pair up to form what are known as Cooper pairs, and these allow a material to conduct electricity without resistance, known as superconductivity. Quantum properties of superconductors can then be harnessed to ultimately make qubits. Now, in order to perform quantum calculations, you need multiple qubits talking to each other, but these things are notoriously sensitive and if one gets disrupted, it can cause the whole calculation to break down. This week in Nature, a team of researchers has been looking at one of these sources of disruption and what can be done about it. One of the members of the team is Antti Vepsilainen from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the US. Reporter Lizzie Gibney gave him a call to find out more and began by asking what kinds of things can upset these delicate qubits. Basically, anything can cause these disruptions. Most common sources of errors, for example, in our types of qubits, is fluctuating magnetic fields. Then there can be some charges in the superconducting material, for example, uh, broken Cooper pairs that form quasi-particles. They can 
cause all kinds of disruptions in the delicate quantum state and the result of the computation is wrong. But things like magnetic fields, presumably in a lab, you can account for that. You could have some kind of shielding. But the quasi-particles, do we have any idea of what might be causing them? There has been a long-lasting issue of there being way more quasi-particles than one would think there exist. There has been some suggestions in the literature that ionizing radiation from the environment could create quasi-particles and other disruptions in the system. So where does this kind of radiation come from? So there are many sources of ionizing radiation in the environment. For example, there can be nuclear decays in any materials around us. I mean, it's usually not harmful to people, but it can be strong enough to cause errors in the qubits. So just impurities in concrete can cause ionizing radiation. And there are also cosmic rays. So those are very high energetic particles coming mostly from the sun. And what would it do when those particles hit the the qubit then? What does it do to the the superconducting material? So our qubits are formed usually from two materials, aluminum and silicon. And when a high energy particle from concrete hits this silicon chip, it causes a lot of absorption of energy. That energy propagates through the chip. It's like a shockwave in the lattice of atoms. And then it finally makes its way with the aluminum where the qubits are located. And that energy is enough to break those Cooper pairs that form the superconducting material and form quasi-particles. So there's a good theory for why radiation might impact qubits. How did you go about testing this experimentally? In order to see how strongly this radiation affects actually qubits and their coherence, that's basically their lifetime, we inserted a radioactive sample made of copper 64 right on top of the qubits we had in the chip. And then we cooled down these qubits and started measuring their coherence. In the beginning, the coherence time of these qubits was very short. That was because the radiation from our source was very strong. However, after several weeks, the radiation from the source had become much weaker. And then we could measure that the coherence times of the qubits had increased dramatically. And what about for cosmic rays? Was there anything you could do to test how they affected your qubits? The problem with the cosmic rays is it's not easy to artificially generate them. However, we can measure the intensity of those cosmic rays quite easily in the laboratory. And then using a simulation, we could simulate both of the effect of copper 64 and the cosmic rays. And from there, we could deduce how big an effect should cosmic rays have on the qubit. So how big an effect did you predict the ionizing radiation would have? So if things like temperature changes and the magnetic fields were not an issue, how long would the qubits live if radiation were their only problem? In our qubits, approximately the lifetime is limited to four milliseconds. Now that's quite a long time compared to the best coherence times of contemporary devices, which is approximately 500 microseconds. But it's sure that these lifetimes need to increase. So currently it's other kinds of sources of error that are limiting the quantum computers. But in the future, it could be radiation. So do you think this is something that quantum computing scientists are going to have to take into account? Are we going to see quantum computers all in big lid boxes, for instance? Well, yeah, that's definitely a possibility. In our experiment, we showed that you can 
reduce ionizing radiation from the nuclear decays in the laboratory by building a lead shield. And we showed that it had a statistically significant effect on the lifetime of the qubits. However, cosmic rays are highly penetrating. With them, it's harder to mitigate them by just shielding. You would need to go underground mines, for example, uh, to do your experiment. Uh, fortunately, mm. there are also some ways to change the designs of the qubits. So we can also try to use engineering to go around this problem now that we know and now that we have shown that it exists. Given that concrete is, you know, a rather ubiquitous building material, that has got to be quite a pain if you want to actually build a quantum computer in the future, no? Oh, yeah, that's true. I mean, it's possible to filter this radiation building a lead shield. Of course, the other option is to start using wood, for example, for your laboratories, which don't have these heavy impurities, which can then go through nuclear decays and cause radiation. It's just another thing that people have to think about when they're making quantum computers. I mean, yeah, there are many things and many more small details. We definitely think this ionizing radiation is one of them which you really need to take care of in the future. That was Antti Vepsalainen. You can find a link to his paper in the show notes. Time now for Coronapod. But if you want to skip ahead to the non-corona content, then take a look in the show notes for the timings of everything that's coming up. Right now, though, I'm joined by Noah Baker and Amy Maxman to discuss the latest COVID-19 updates. Hello to you both. Hi. Hi there. This week, we're going to be talking about something we've touched on several times on Coronaport, and that is convalescent plasma. Now, last week, there were rumours that the US Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, was going to authorise this treatment for emergency use. And it turns out that this is something that actually has come to pass. Amy, could you maybe just quickly talk us through what that means and the timeline of what's happened? Right. So the FDA gave emergency use authorization to convalescent plasma this past weekend. So that means that patients can now request it and doctors can give it to people, similar to compassionate use. This isn't yet an approved therapy, but it's authorized. You can use it because of this emergency Now, this is kind of a tricky one for me because, as we talked about when I did my story way back in March, this is a therapy that holds some promise, and also there's some nice benefits about it. You know, we don't have to talk about pharmaceutical manufacturing. That means it's lower cost. It means it's abundant. It means, you know, countries that may not have access to things like remdesivir could have it. So there's lots of reasons to be positive about convalescent plasma, which is why I was interested in it. But I was really upset about the way in which it happened. So convalescent plasma has been being used in certain states. So this isn't saying that we can it can now be used. There have already been allowances made for it to be used in the context of clinical trials, for example. Um, and that's what we talked about way back in March. Yeah, some hospitals have been using it in Texas and New York. And it was kind of presided over by researchers. And a lot of this was not in a clinical trial, but at least it was a study context. So they were really observing closely what happened and keeping track of the data. The reason they did all this was hoping for an emergency use authorization so that they could look at the results, which now they've done, and say something. So one thing that came out of what we know so far is it seems to be relatively safe. So that, I think, is fairly well understood. But this first stage of approval for emergency use has ruffled feathers of a lot of scientists and a lot of science journalists. Why? Because of the way in which it was done. So I noticed this this weekend. First, on Saturday, Trump accused the FDA as being part of the deep state for how slow they've been to accept and authorize new treatments and push forward vaccines. So that was a 
pretty remarkable thing to say. It really undermines this agency whose job is to make sure that there are safeguards in place and that we look at the evidence and that, you know, the many drug companies out there can't make false claims. So that's their job is to be really careful with this. So first he did that. And it sort of felt like this was a big push on the FDA to do this. And then with his announcement, let's see, Trump called it a huge breakthrough. Alex Azar, who's the head of Health and Human Services, he gave a speech calling it a major advance. And the FDA commissioner sort of said, this is remarkable, it's a breakthrough. And they all cited this statistic saying 35% reduction in mortality. And I think for most people, including me, I would have thought something like 35 out of 100 people who might have died of COVID now aren't dying. So that does sound like a major breakthrough, but I know enough from keeping track of convalescent plasma that that's simply not a known number. So I think that was what is so upsetting to me, this narrative that, yay, we've got a breakthrough, because I think that's a political narrative that the administration wants to say, and that's sort of what motivated it. Yes, this number then, it does seem to have caused a lot of controversy from a lot of people in terms of just where has it come from. So what do we know about this 35% then? You would ideally get a number like this from a clinical trial that had a placebo group that you could compare it to. But clinical trials have been really small, and most of them that are running aren't finished. And WHO put out a statement saying that, you know, it's too soon to make a pronouncement. So the numbers that people are using, a lot of it is from the various studies around the world where people have been transfused, and they're kind of doing statistics around these studies that were not placebo controlled to try and say, does this seem to have a benefit? There was one report that came out, it's a preprint, so that means it's not peer reviewed. It came out by the researchers that I covered in my story who have really kind of pushed this forward in the US. And they looked at 35,000 patients that were transfused. And that's a big diverse group of patients with different characteristics, different stages of disease. So they crunched all of this data and they picked it apart after the fact. But even in that paper, if you look at the results, and of course, everything has to be couched very carefully, which they did. So they did do a fair job with the paper. It doesn't at any point say that there's a 35% reduction in mortality. It says things like, for patients who get plasma with high IgG levels, that's those antibodies we think are protective, the seven-day mortality rate is 8.9% versus for recipients of low IgG plasma, the mortality rate is 13.7%. So they did these kind of comparisons like this, and then they'll compare the groups to each other. But at no point is it 35%. And in fact, there's a New York Times piece where they went back to these authors of the study and they asked, where's the 35% from? And the authors of the study said, we have no idea where the 35% is from. So FDA is saying they also have other data they're looking at, but none of that's published So that was sort of upsetting that the FDA commissioner has since put out a statement saying he was talking about relative risk and not absolute risk, but that still doesn't really get at this 35% number. Throughout this pandemic, we've talked a lot about how numbers can be represented and how numbers can be misleading and statistics can be misleading. And, you know, the importance of making sure that data is transparent and is from a place that can be verified. And now there's this number that's floating around and no one quite knows where it's from. And someone like Donald Trump or a politician... They may not have the training to get those stats right, but I think there's a lot of heat on, you know, Stephen Hahn, who is the director of the FDA, because he's an oncologist, like he should know this, which is, I think is a big part of why there's been so much pressure on the FDA and so many sort of accusations of political interference here, because this seems like something that he would not get wrong. If the FDA said, let's 
issue an authorization to use convalescent plasma, but they did so saying there's signals that it could be effective. It looks fairly safe. Let's collect more data. Had they said that, I would have been fine with it. But to use numbers, it gives this sense that there's some science behind this and that clarification of I'm talking about relative risk versus absolute risk, that really doesn't do anything for the lay public or even for me to tell me what that number is. And sort of the super sad thing here is convalescent plasma could be really promising. And my big fear here is they hype this up, they call this a breakthrough. If I'm a patient and I'm really worried about dying from COVID, I might not want to be in a clinical trial where I could get placebo. I want this breakthrough treatment. And therefore, there won't be a clinical trial. And therefore, we will never really know if it was at all helpful or not. And that data could be so important. I mean, we've had so many cases. Wouldn't it be nice to have some answers? And we're not going to get them with this kind of hype. Right. And I think that's one of the big problems at the moment is that although there are many reasons that authorizing this use could be a positive move, if it was authorized a little bit later on, then it might have given these clinical trials a little bit more of a fighting chance to actually get some results that we could work with. It causes so much harm, and it's just worrisome on so many levels. There's a reporter called Adam Furstein at STAT, and he had a piece where he said something like, you know, I've spent 20 years listening to biotech CEOs making nonsensical inflated claims about the benefit of their drugs. So it's weird and disconcerting to actually hear the FDA commissioner do the same. Like if this was a biotech company doing this, you might understand, but to have the FDA whose sole purpose is really to look at the evidence critically, do the same is really nerve wracking. And I think the bigger picture fear is, you know, Russia was pushing forward a vaccine that had hardly been tested. And it's sort of worrisome that is this what it's going to look like in the months leading up to the election? Are we going to start seeing even a vaccine with very little data get pushed? And that's another really important question that I know has got people worried. Vaccines are another step beyond treatments, right? Because vaccines are given to healthy people versus, you know, treatments are often given to people that are very sick in the first place. And so it's kind of a different ethical situation to potentially rush through a vaccine. And I think as it stands, I don't know if anyone has any clear understanding of how the Trump administration could push through a vaccine because there are a lot of other regulators as well as just the FDA that are involved in that. And there's also corporate responsibility of the kind of biotechs who will create these vaccines. And it would be very bad for them to go ahead too soon for their future. But I do think it's a worry that really is very present. In the tweet that Trump sent at the FDA about convalescent plasma, where he accused them of being part of the deep state, this sort of conspiracy theory about cronyism. He accuses the FDA of hindering the drug companies and holding up the development of new drugs. And he mentions vaccines in that treatment as well. And he says that it's clear that the FDA are trying to delay answers until after November 3rd. So in that one tweet, he mentions vaccines. He implies that he thinks the FDA is politically motivated. There's a lot of danger in one tweet there. And you can see why people are getting worried. Just today, actually, as we're recording this, it's been reported that Anthony Fauci, the uh, head of the U.S. National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, of course, has suggested caution that we don't rush these things through, that, that it could hurt other vaccine trials as well. If, if, if one gets approved maybe ahead of its time, it means that, that no one's going to want to volunteer for these other trials and it could really, really hinder the process of making anything that we know to be efficacious in future. You know, it really makes him stand out to me. I feel like he's one of the sole scientists working with the administration who's actually daring to step up and say these things. Yeah, I totally see what you mean. And, and I can imagine as well that, you know, the FDA, 
we can talk about the commissioner, but you know the FDA is is a large group of a lot of scientists, right? The number I've got in my head is eighteen thousand scientists that work for the FDA, and Trump accused them of trying to hold up public health, which is the polar opposite of what the FDA exists to do. And the only reason they might hold up a drugs company is to make sure that what they're producing is safe. And even if he's saying, you know, they're too slow, they need to be working harder or doing more, you know, they might be a bit annoyed about that. But like, that's a reasonable thing to suggest. But to suggest that they are actively trying to, in a politically motivated way, change outcomes, that's a that's a, a whole different kettle of fish. Well, both, let's call it for another edition of Coronapod. But we're going to end this week on a slightly bittersweet note. And Amy, that is that you're going to be sort of leaving us for a while to head off for some adventures. What's going on with you? I've gotten an MIT night journalism fellowship. It's usually a year. This time it's just four months and it can be done remotely. I'm getting this wonderful, amazing opportunity to sort of step back from the news for a minute and think big picture about outbreaks in a way that the news doesn't always allow me to do. And also I can be a little bit more comparative and see what can I learn about politics by seeing them through this lens. And then I'll be back. The other great thing is that, you know, nature is going to let me have this time and then I can come back and jump back in. Well, we shall miss you, Amy. And I know the listeners will too, but it's good to hear you'll be back again at some point in the not too distant future. So for today's Coronapod, Amy and Noah, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Noah and Amy there. Coming up, we'll be hearing about a competition for scientists to replicate the results of their old computer code. Before that, though, Dan Fox is here with this week's research highlights. An elephant might never forget, but a forgotten species of elephant shrew has been found after almost half a century. The Somali Sengi, or Somali elephant shrew, has been considered a lost species, with no new specimens reported since the early 1970s. In fact, almost everything known about this creature has been derived from studies of anatomical specimens or by reviewing museum collection notes. But the Somali Sengi wasn't lost at all, as a new population has been found. Not in Somalia, but in the neighbouring Republic of Djibouti. A team of researchers successfully trapped eight Somali Sengis and believe that there may be further populations in Ethiopia and Somalia. Remember to find that research over at Peer J, the Journal of Life and Environmental Sciences. Paleontologists examining the five-metre-long fossil of an ancient sea creature called an ichthyosaur were stunned to discover the headless remains of a four-metre-long reptile in its stomach. The remains belong to a large example of a marine reptile called a phalatosaur. The condition of the unfortunate creature's bones led the team to think the animal wasn't scavenged, but hunted, lending weight to the theory that ichthyosaurs were top predators. The phalatosaur's intact tail was also recovered from nearby sediments, suggesting the ichthyosaur attacked it using a grip-and-tear strategy, similar to that used by modern killer whales. Hunt down that research at iScience. Many fields of research are facing what's known as the reproducibility crisis. We've covered it before in psychology, where it's proved hard in some cases to replicate important results. 
In this next story, reporter Ali Jennings has been investigating how reproducibility issues might affect scientists' computer code. Researchers have been taking part in a challenge to try and replicate past results using the code they wrote, in some cases, decades ago. Ali caught up with one of the organisers of the challenge, Nicola Ruggier, to find out how the competitors got on. So tell me about the challenge. What were you challenging people to do? So the idea was to try to run your own code that is at least 10 years old. So the condition was that the code was linked with a research paper. So you take the article and you try to get the same results. But even if you are the original author, it's not that easy. What was the reason for choosing this kind of challenge in the first place? The idea was to uh, find a way to think about all the computational results we are publishing. Can you still use them 10 years from now? Because the source code will be only runnable for a short period of time. At some point, it will die. And just to play devil's advocate, what's the worst that can happen if we can't run that old code? Does it really matter? Let's suppose uh, your article is about, uh, let's say, I don't know, a new model or a new uh, deep learning uh, algorithm where you get a fantastic result, but you can't run the code. Okay, you describe something partly inside your code, but is it really useful if nobody can run the code? But so many changes happen over that 10-year span. How useful is it to be able to go back to a model that you made 15 years ago? Is that even going to be relevant to what you're doing now? It depends on the domain. So, of course, if you are into, uh, for example, deep learning today, one month is already quite uh, quite old. For some other domain, maybe, I don't know, you will rediscover uh, all results and you say, oh, this is interesting because now I can make the link with this new theory or this new model. And so I need to run this code. You can't just copy and paste it back into a program that you're using now 10 years later you can try to do that but it uh, probably it, uh, it won't work so for example if you wrote your program in python 10 years ago probably it was version 2 so now there is only version 3 okay you will install uh, an old version of python but then you have to also fix all the dependencies so for example if you are using a specific numerical library you will have to also install it on your system so in the end it's not a matter of uh, copy pasting code because you, you want to run this code and this is where the all the problems start and did you try the challenge yourself yeah so i tried with my very first published program. It was in a magazine for Apple IIe 32 years ago. I don't remember all the commands. So you, you look at what you have to type and you have no idea how to enter that into the computer. It took me like one month of investigation into Apple II. And in the end, I even managed to run it on an actual physical Apple II in my office. I had to find some uh, floppy disk on uh, Amazon and it was really, really slow. But Walking. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. And what about your other entries? Did they run into the same kinds of problems? One had a fail because he keeps the source code on a old kind of tape. And of course, if you don't have the reader, well, you, you cannot uh, you cannot read it. Some people uh, were careful enough 10 years ago to do everything properly. One of the oldest entries, it was a paper, was published 28 years ago, but it kept everything even as a receipt for the MATLAB version with the exact price because at some point they asked him, how do you know the price of the MATLAB because it keeps the receipt. Yeah, no, it was a all kind of different problem for different people. 
We were happy because uh, we have a lot of participants and it helped to put the light on this reproducibility problem. And now that it's done, do you think that's it for the competition? So the goal is maybe to try to do it 10 years from now and uh, we'll see if it will be uh, as successful as it was for this edition. Because now it's an increase in the rate of uh, modification of computer systems. So I don't know in 10 years from now if it will be more difficult or less difficult to redo the challenge. But are we at least trying to do something to tackle the problem? So there are some uh, initiatives by uh, journals to say, oh, you have to release your, your code and people will make their code available. Currently, you have a GitHub, but of course, GitHub is a private company. So you can decide from one day to the other to say, okay, we close everything. So the alternative there is software heritage. And mostly, they will keep all the open source code on the planet. And it's funded by a lot of different academic entities. So at least we have some guarantee with that that we will be able to, to find the the source code. Of course, it does not guarantee that you will be able to run it, but at least if you can have the source code, it's huge progress. That was Nicola Rougier at the National Institute for Research in Digital Science and Technology and the Institute of Neurodegenerative Diseases, both in France. For more about the 10 Years Reproducibility Challenge, you can find a link to the feature in the show notes. Finally on the show, it's time for the weekly briefing chat. Now, the Nature Briefing is having a brief summer break, but Nick, you and I have had a look back at some of the stories from it that might have been missed. What's caught your eye? Well, with Chamonix away this week, I thought someone had to take up the mantle and cover some weird animal story. So I found a story about a dinosaur that appeared to have cancer. Well, which I imagine is a pretty difficult thing to try and ascertain. What what do we know about this dinosaur then? Well, you're right in that you have to look back at fossil records from a long time ago and figure out that it was cancer. So what they did in this research is they found a partial part of a fibula, so a leg bone, and it looked very strange, but originally they thought maybe it's just a fracture that hasn't healed properly. But then the scientists compared it to a human fibula that had been affected by a disease known as osteosarcoma, and it looked very similar. And then they did some molecular analyses and looked it under the microscope, and it appeared that in fact this dinosaur had also suffered from osteosarcoma, this type of bone cancer. I mean, I have several questions straight off the bat here, Nick. But the first one is, they've really managed to kind of zoom right in then to, to the sort of type of cancer. And of course, as we know, there are there are many, many different versions of it. Yeah, well, I think the only versions that would be picked up by scientists millions of years after the fact are ones that are going to be affecting the bones and are going to be fossilised. Other cancers in soft tissues and things are unlikely to be fossilised. And in this case, the bone was from a dinosaur known as a Centrosaurus, which was around 76 million years ago. So it would have to be something quite significant for scientists to still pick up a trace of the disease millions of years after the fact. I mean, is, is this ultimately what did for this dinosaur, do we know? Well, the scientists think it's unlikely because it was actually found amongst a bunch of other centrosaurs. So it looks like it was actually killed by a flood. But in humans, this disease is normally fatal. So they think it may well have done for the dinosaur, but not in this particular case. OK. And, and, and what sort of will this open up then? Is this a whole new field of ancient disease identification, do you think? Well, it's not the first time that a cancer has been found in a dinosaur. So there have been tumours found in a T-Rex before, but they were benign. This is the first time that a malignant, like still growing cancer has been found. And the researchers think that it may stimulate 
closer look at previous bone fossils that have been considered to just have fractures or just looking strange and maybe they're actually the telltale signs of disease instead. Well Nick I've brought something this week as well for our briefing chats and it's a career story but it's quite close to my heart and it's about brewing and and fermenting and I've just been recently gifted a home beer brewing kit which I'm sure will make a sticky mess all over the floor but there are a bunch of researchers who have been doing better than that and uh, and sort of learning things from their enterprises. So these are researchers who are just brewing in their spare time or are they people who are researching this sort of thing and then doing it as a business what, what's going on here well actually do you know what you're right in many cases some of them sort of started as hobbyists and then moved on to to other careers and in many cases they say that they've learned skills from academia that have really been transferable to the fermented food and drink based businesses they've come up with for example, there's one chap uh, who started brewing kombucha tea. Now, I don't know if you've tried this, Nick, but it's a fermented tea. And it's, it, it is delicious, I will say. And he started fermenting it after he did an internship at NASA's Johnson Space Center and, and while he was doing his PhD. And so what sort of skills are transferable from the academic world to the brewing world? Well, in this case, the guy and his wife set up a company to, to sell this tea. In his case, at the same time as finishing his PhD and now at the same time as, as being an assistant professor. So he's obviously clearly very busy. But the skills that he said was kind of transferable between these kind of disparate worlds of fermented tea and academia were things like, you know, time management, he mentioned. Clearly, there's a lot of, lot of juggling that goes on, whether you're, you know, doing the accounts and sort of doing your fermenting or whether you're filling in a grant proposal and trying to teach or, or you know, to finish a paper or what have you. So he said that that was quite a core thing that he could take. And he also said that the presentation skills that he learned at graduate school were really, really useful for a business competition that he entered to try and get some seed funding, which actually ultimately got his kind of business up and running. Oh, great. So there's all sorts of things you can take from academia. Like, are there any other examples we haven't seen a whole host of people leaving academia for the brewing world now well there are actually a bunch of examples in this article and i thoroughly recommend giving it a read one of the interesting ones that stood out to me is as a woman a j nicole jackson beckham now she while she was working as an academic she was really really interested in the lack of diversity in many areas of craft beer production and uh, and this is something that you know she's done a bunch of work on and this year she ultimately left her role as a professor of communication studies and has started a non-profit to champion inclusion, equity and justice, she says, in the craft brewing industry. And I've got a great quote from here about that kind of transition. When people ask me what it's like to no longer be an academic, I always say, I'm definitely an academic. I just left the academy. And she goes through and lists some of the things that are kind of similar. You know, she does data collection for her work. She does a lot of teaching and talking and you know, giving seminars and what have you. So maybe surprisingly, there does seem to be some parallels between fermentation and academia. Well, all I say is cheers to that. And thanks, Benjamin. Listeners, if you'd like more stories like these, then make sure you check out The Nature Briefing, nature's pick of science news and stories. We'll put a link of where to sign up, along with links to the stories we covered in this week's show notes. That's about it for this week. But before we go, just time to highlight a new video on our YouTube channel, all about tiny robots. And just how tiny are we talking? Oh, when I say tiny, I mean they can't be seen with the naked eye tiny. Head over to youtube.com slash nature video channel to find out how they work and to see them in action. And if you want to tell us what you think about those tiny robots or anything else we've talked about, then you can get in touch with us. You can reach us on Twitter, we're at nature podcast, or send us an email, we're podcast at nature.com. I'm Nick Howe. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. See you next time.
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Here's a cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact: you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.